Let's open the word of God together for a scripture reading. We're turning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, and beginning at verse 26. This is the third parable in Mark's Gospel that we'll be thinking about later on. And it is the parable of the growing seed. The Lord Jesus said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep, and rise, night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Amen. Now I hope I have reminded you enough what a parable is over these last number of weeks as we have embarked on dealing with the four parables that are in Mark's Gospel, four alone. And we spent two weeks on the first parable because we said it was the parable of parables. And we looked at exactly what a parable was and then the following week we looked actually at the facets and details of the parable of the sower, the seed and the soils. And then last Sunday morning we looked at the parable of the lamp and its stand. And then today we're looking at the parable of the growing seed. And a parable, of course, we found is a comparison. It means to put one thing alongside another to compare them. Uh, some of you have been saying to me on the way out that at school or at Sunday school you learned that little quip that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, I didn't say it to you at the door, I hadn't the heart, but I don't really like that particular definition because in a certain way it sort of tells you that the meaning has something to do with heaven when in essence most of the meanings in the parables have a lot to do with earth. Maybe more about earth than heaven. And so there's earthly meaning to these parables because they really affect our lives and how we live down here on earth for the master. Now you remember that uh, these parables originally were meant to be heard and not read and therefore we have to think about that in our interpretation of them. The listeners of these parables had to make an instant appraisal of what the Lord Jesus was saying and so we have said that there is one great idea that, that leaps out and shines like a flash of lightning in the parable. Now, I grant you that there are uh, other related truths within parables, and we see that this morning, and we've seen it already in the last two parables that we looked at, but those truths are related to the one main truth that the Lord Jesus wished to convey in the parable. So, the question begs this morning once more, what is this great truth that the Lord would have us learn from the parable of the growing seed? Now, it's interesting to note right away that this particular parable is not found anywhere else in the Gospels. It is unique to Mark's Gospel. And if you look at it, let's just peruse the details of it. The kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus said, is like a man who casts seed into the ground and he sleeps, rises night and day. 
and deceit springs forth. And he doesn't understand why that is happening. And the earth brings forth this fruit of itself. First the blade, then the ear, and then the full corn ear. But when the fruit is ripe, when it's brought forth, immediately the farmer puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Of course, this is all spiritual language the Lord Jesus is using. And we have seen in previous parables that the seed is the word of God. And so what we have here is, I believe, and I'll state it to you right away so as we get the gist throughout our message today of what the Lord is, is getting across. The message is the inevitability of the independent growth of the seed. Let me repeat that. The inevitability of the independent growth of the seed. It's inevitable that God's seed will grow when it is received by faith into the heart of the hearer. And that seed grows independently in the heart. Now, let me first of all address what that does not mean. This parable does not teach that there are not contributory factors to the growth of the seed. It grows independently, but that doesn't mean that nothing else affects its growth. Now, first of all, as we look at the spiritual truth, we have to say that a sower must sow the seed. Is that not so? Excuse the pun. There is a sower and he is planting this seed. And that has to happen. Though the growth is independent and the life is in the seed itself, someone needs to go and put it out onto the soil. And it's the same with the gospel. People will not get saved if we just sit and rest on our leaves and do nothing about it. But as Paul said in Romans, how shall they hear without a preacher? There needs to be a sower. Please God, through the foolishness of preaching, Paul told the Corinthians, to save some. So there are contributory factors to the growth of this seed, though it grows independently. There must be a sower to sow. And then secondly, not only must there be a sower, there must be water. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul could say, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. But he's indicating there that though God gave the increase, and the seed's growth was independent of anything else, because the life is in the seed, there was a contributory factor to the growth of that seed, and that was watering, and I believe watering could well be prayer. We need to sow the seed. We need preachers. We need people to gossip the gospel. And it's not enough just to throw the seed out. We need to pray before and after. We need to water the word of God. A sower must sow. The seed must be watered. And thirdly, the soil must be fertile. Have we not learned that already in the parable of the sower? And if you look back just for a moment at verse 20... You will see that good soil is designated as representing those who hear the word 
and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. But the parable of the sower, as well as teaching the inevitability that though uh, three quarters of the hearers will reject the seed of the word of God in some sense, and will not let it go deep down in their heart to bear fruit, there's one quarter of a harvest. There will be a harvest. But it also tells us that we have a responsibility as hearers to cultivate our hearts. If God's seed of a word is going to bear fruit, it's got to rest on fertile soil in responsive hearts. And so this parable is not teaching that there are no contributory factors to the growth of the seed. It doesn't teach some kind of determinism. What I mean by that is that God will save even if we don't preach and don't pray and don't prepare our hearts and don't seek to prepare the hearts of others. Someone reminded me last week at the door on the way out of how in 1786 William Carey uh, had laid on his heart the burden of world mission and he laid it before a ministerial meeting in Northampton in England, and the eminent Dr. Kylan stood to his feet and said to him, Young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. Not so. There is an inevitable and independent growth of the seed. But there are other contributory factors that God has ordained. A sower must sow. Water must be poured on the seed and the soil must be fertile. So the Lord's not teaching such a falsified view of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. If he were, he would be contradicting his own teaching. Particularly in the parable he's just taught about the lamp on the stand. What did he say? The lamp isn't to be put under a bushel or under a bed. It has to be set on the stand. And who was the stand? It's you. It's me. It's the church. And the converse of that truth is there can be a cover-up of the truth and the light of the gospel. Now, though that's not what the Lord is teaching, and I, I feel urged to give that caveat, God, though he has ordained human instrumentality in the process of the sowing of the seed, this parable is teaching that we as mere human beings, even sowers and waterers of the seed and tenders of the soil, we cannot create the phenomenon of growth. What this parable teaches is that the secret of the growth of the seed, the secret of its life, is in itself. Now that is the central lesson of this parable. The inevitable and independent growth of a seed sown into a welcoming and believing heart. And the Lord's point is, blessing is inevitable. Because the life of the seed is in itself. Now what can we learn from this central truth of the parable today? Well, we can learn several lessons. The first is this. We learn something of the unique power of the Word of God. We learn something of the unique power of the Word of God. The seed is the Word. And if you look at verse 27, and the seed should sprout and grow, and the farmer himself does not know how. Now, the order in the Greek language there is 
Hi, comma, he does not know. And the emphasis is on the high. He is so in the seat. He sleeps night and day, leaves it, waits, and it grows. And he is dumbfounded at the process. He doesn't understand how. Robertson, the Greek scholar, makes a valuable note on this and says, The mystery of the growth still puzzles farmers and scientists of today with all our modern knowledge. But nature's secret processes do not fail to operate because we are ignorant. This secret and mysterious growth of the kingdom in the heart and life is the point of this beautiful parable by Mark. It is mysterious. It is imperceptible. It is going on all around it, all around us, though we do not see it. But though we are ignorant of how it happens, we know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, etc. We know that the seed is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so we learn something of the unique power of the word of God. Just as the, the natural seed has life in itself, so the word of God is infused with life and power. Now, I'm far from a horticulturalist. Can't even cut the grass. But... I love reading about seeds in nature. Some fascinating facts. On one occasion, a, a seed was taken from a 600-year-old rattle necklace that was found in South America. And this seed was planted. And in 1968, it germinated. And it grew to a six-feet-tall plant and then eventually flowered and bore fruit. 600 years being in a, a necklace. Professor Thomas Henry Huxley, who was a famous English biologist, said that deeply buried in English soil are tropical seeds of almost limitless variety brought here by migrating birds then dropped into our soil and birds from all sorts of distant regions and those seeds lie dormant in the soil and they're waiting for, for tropical weather, for a climate to bring forth their lovely blossom and fruit. <laughs> Maybe global warming will do it and you'll have a pineapple tree in your backyard. It's amazing, isn't it? But the life is in the seed, you see. And though there are contributory factors of climate and surroundings and so on, that life lies there dormant. Life is in the seed. It remains in it even after 600 years. And life is in God's word. This is a living book. This parable teaches us something about the unique power of the word of God. I can't remember his name, but I heard the story of Maybe some of you know who he is, a street preacher down at the Custom House steps years ago. And he used to take his hat off and throw it on the ground. And he would shout, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. And all this crowd would gather around and he was about to preach at. And then he would lift the hat and underneath it was a Bible. It's alive. 
This is God's living and abiding word. And there is a strange force in every utterance of God's word. Genesis 1.11. We are looking at the parable of the growth of the seed. And there God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields seed. And the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. He was creating seeds and plants and fruit, but he did it through his word. And the Son of God came to this earth and gave life with a word. Lazarus' body had been in the grave till it stunk. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. And yet with the word of Christ, he could curse the fig tree and took life away from it. With the word, he cast out devils. He healed diseases. He calmed tempests. He even caused in John chapter 18 his enemies to fall back onto the ground. With his word. There is a unique power in the word of God. And let me tell you, that is why you're born again. First Peter 1, 23 to 25 reads thus. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as a flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. You know, this parable that we're looking at today ought to reaffirm our faith in the Bible. Why substitute the Bible for gimmicks? When this is the living and abiding word of God, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall never pass away. I love music, but music is no substitute for this book. This lives. Martin Luther, discovering ultimately the great, unique power in God's word, coming out of the darkness of Romanism, he wished to make essentially two contributions to Christendom at large. First of all, he wanted to give them a Bible they could understand and secondly, a hymnal from which they could sing. And this is what he said. Let them loose and like fire they'll spread on their own. <laughs> now, he wasn't taking out the contributory factors of human instrumentality. He was the man that spent all those late nights translating the Bible from Latin into German. But he knew there was a power in the seed of the word. It is in itself. It is unique. Let them loose and the flame will spread on its own. Whatever opposition there is to the word of God, isn't it wonderful to be able to believe today 
that, as Isaiah said, as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. Do you believe in the unique power of the word of God? That's what this parable teaches us. And then secondly, it teaches us the unusual productivity of the word of God. The unusual productivity is spoken of in verse 28. For the earth yields crops by herself, by itself. The Lord is describing the mysterious, imperceptible growth of the seed of herself. Now, that phrase of herself is a translation of a Greek word automate or uh, it's the one we, we get our English word derived from it automatic and Kenneth Wiest in his uh, Greek commentary says this word means self moved spontaneously without external aid and also beyond external control, with the way and will, so to speak, of its own that must be respected and waited for. Automatic. Automatically, the seed sprouts because the life is in itself. The only other example of this word used in the New Testament is in Acts 12, verse 10 where Peter, your member, was in prison and miraculously the gates opened and the Bible says there, the gates opened of its own accord. That's that word. Of its own accord, automatically. And this is how the seed works. Automatically it sprouts and brings forth fruit. The nature of the soil, the weather, and the cultivation of the plant all enter in. But the secret of the growth is in the seed itself. The life is not in the water. The life is not in the soil. The life is not in the soil. The life is in the seed. This is the law of nature. But it is also the law of the kingdom of God. Listen to Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. There is an unusual productivity in the word of God. One writer put it like this, this single fact creates the confidence shown by Jesus in the ultimate establishment of his kingdom in spite of the obstacles which obstruct its progress. That's profound. Why didn't the Lord Jesus on a human level throw the tile in? Because everything was going against him. The whole way to the cross. The whole nation rejected him as their Messiah. And then his own disciples all forsook him. And then he's put to death. We know why and all the rest. But with the naked eye, you look at the story. But he knew, he believed that the word of the kingdom that he was sowing would reap a harvest. 
Because the life was in the word that he was sowing among men. I hear sometimes foolish talk of people who say, you know, uh, how do you know that there was going to be a harvest returned for the work and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you know if it's just up to people believing in the Lord Jesus? This is how I know, because the life is in the seed. That's how the Lord Jesus knew, because the seed that he was sowing was the life. Now that should create confidence in you who sow the seed. That should create courage in you who sow the seed. And that should create some comfort in you who sow the seed among boys and girls, particularly your own boys and girls. Now we have to be careful here because the soil that this seed sprouts in is the good soil of the parable of the sower, and that is believing soil that bears fruit. But isn't it wonderful to know that when you sow this seed, you are sowing life into young lives, and who knows, like those tropical seeds that are buried everywhere around Great Britain, who knows when the moment will be that the climate's right, and the water comes down from heaven. And they sprout forth to the glory of God. Who knoweth? That should be a comfort to some of you. Now ultimately as we've seen in these previous parables. Christ is the one sowing the seed of the kingdom. And we know that for definite. Because if you look down you'll see. That. That. Uh, the one who sows is also the one who reaps. Verse 29. And so the Lord Jesus is sowing the seed of the kingdom in his earthly ministry. And now he is absent as the farmer is here. He leaves it alone. And there's a day coming when he's going to come back. And the Lord Jesus will reap that harvest. And he will separate the wheat from the tare. But of course, he's also, as we've seen in these previous parables, instructing his disciples as they went into the world to sow the seed, the same seed of the word of God. Now, we have this obvious force in the New Testament. We are sowers of the seed. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 20, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word, the seed of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though... God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. First Corinthians 3 9, Paul says, We are God's fellow workers. So this truth applies to the work of God. What truth? The unusual productivity of the Word of God. This applies to the work of God that you're involved in sowing the seed among children and young people and adults. Now, how does it apply? Well, here's three practical ways. It applies in that it teaches us there is a need for perspective in the work of God. A need for perspective. To put it bluntly, this work isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about him. 
And it's about his word. It's about the seed. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Verse 7. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. We need perspective. It's not about us. We have something to do. But it's not about what we do. It's about what God does. And it's from his hand that comes the increase. And Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 3 to the Corinthians was, Since planter and water do not have any power in themselves to bring forth life, why are you Corinthians envying each other? And why is there great rivalry in the work of God? You should just go and do the work God has allotted to you and rejoice when God shows his hand of blessing on it. It's not about you, Corinthians. It's not about me as an apostle. It's all about him and his word. Any perspective. Sometimes we lose perspective. Second Corinthians 3, Paul again addresses this problem. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? And verse 5 says, Not that we are sufficient for, uh, of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. It's not about us. And this parable gives us perspective. When we consider the unusual productivity of the word of God, it happens in spite of us. We have an involvement, but the life springing forth has got nothing to do with us. Second practical thing that we can learn about the work of God, there's a need not only for perspective, but patience in the work of God. Look at verse 27 and 28. The farmer slept. He rose night and day. The seed sprung up. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2 says, To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And verse 2 at the end says, A time to plant and a time to pluck up that that is planted. That's really saying there are seasons. There are seasons in life, there are seasons in nature, and there are seasons in sowing the seed. And often that season is a season of waiting. Sowing, waiting, reaping. And what goes on during that waiting time, that time that we should be patient, is often imperceptible. The farmer doesn't know what's going on under the ground. You don't know what's going behind the veil of the Spirit. But something is going on because the life is in the seed. And the farmer sleeps and rises, sleeps and rises. And then one day the seed grows and he doesn't know how. Hudson Taylor, that great pioneer missionary to China, said there are three qualifications for missionaries. Patience, patience, and patience. That's a qualification for anyone in the work of the Lord. It takes good faith to be a farmer like this man. It takes good patience to be a farmer like this man. And it takes the same faith and patience to be a sower. Of God's seed. Someone has said the secret of patience is doing something else in the meantime. <laughs> this man was sleeping, getting up at night, and going to bed, doing his day's work. And the thing we can be doing while we're waiting and patiently looking for the harvest is to keep sowing, to keep watering. That's our job. 
Some go a lifetime without seeing much fruit. But God's word promises that a harvest will come. Archbishop Trench, I think in his commentary on the parables, tells how in 1690, a certain plant was brought over and planted in the gardens of Hampton Court Palace by Queen Mary. And the last 10 years of the 17th century passed, and the plant gave no sign of flowering. The whole of the 18th century passed, and not a bud did the plant put forth. 88 years of the 19th century passed, and still no sign of a flower. But in 1889, the plant burst into a blossom. <laughs> because the life was in the seed. Queen Mary didn't see it. Neither did Queen, King Billy either. Her, her husband. The next monarch didn't see it. But in 1889, the harvest came. Some years ago, there was a vase that was sealed airtight found in a mummy pit in Egypt by the English traveller Wilkinson and he, he sent it to the British Museum and the librarian there had butter fingers and he unfortunately broke it and discovered a few grains of wheat and one or, or two peas and they were old and wrinkled and hard as stone and he planted those peas carefully under glass on the 4th of June 1844 and at the end of 30 days those old seeds were seen to spring up into new life. Those peas were buried several thousand years before they sprouted, perhaps in the time of Moses. And they slept. Oh, apparently dead to all intents and purposes, yet they were still living in the dust of that tomb. Because the life is in the seed. It's interesting when Luke talks about the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 15, speaking of the good ground, he says, But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. That's what Luke says. You need perspective in the work of God. You need patience in the work of God. But thirdly, you need perseverance in the work of God. Galatians 6 verse 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. This parable teaches we don't have to raise the dead. That's not our job. We, if we faithfully sow the seed, if we water it in prayer, we can believe God for a harvest, though we never see it. We can believe, for he has said it. Now that, don't know what it does for you, but that liberates me. It's not about me. William Carey spent over 40 years in Burma and India. And when he was asked to explain his astonishing accomplishments, he simply answered one word, perseverance. He said to his wife Eustace, if after my removal, his death, Anyone should think it worthwhile to write my life, I will give you a criterion. If he gives me credit for being a plodder, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plod. 
perseverance. Ecclesiastes 11.4 He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The unusual productivity of the word of God teaches us we need perspective in God's work. We need patience and perseverance in God's work. But thirdly and finally, something else we learn, along with the unique power of the word of God and the unusual productivity of the word of God, we are presented with the ultimate purpose of the word of God. Verse 29, the seed was sown to bring forth harvest. That's the reason why the word of God is sown. Kenneth Weiss translates verse 28 and 29 like this. Listen carefully. It bears out all that we have said. The earth bears fruit spontaneously. First herbage. Then a covering for the grain, the ear. Then the fully developed grain in its covering. And whenever the fruit permits, immediately he sends forth the sickle because the harvest stands ready. Though the growth is imperceptible, it is yet constant and it yields an increase in the end. When the, the, the grain ripens and the harvest will eventually on that day be taken to the heavenly garner. This parable presents God's kingdom from the first sowing hidden in the hearts of men when the Lord Jesus was on the earth. Then the patient waiting in this age of grace until the final reaping for all to see at the end of the age. That great harvest. The ultimate purpose for the word of God is that there should be a harvest to God's glory. Now let me finish with two very brief challenges to you. The parable of the growing seed surely issues to us a challenge of preparedness for that day of harvest. Ecclesiastes 11.6 reads, In the morning sow your seed. And in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, whether both alike will be good. But the predicament the church and this church finds itself in, in these days, is epitomized in the song that we sang years ago, O where are the reapers that garner in? The sheaves of good from the fields of sin. With sickles of truth must the work be done and no one may rest till the harvest home. Where are the reapers or who will come and share in the glory of the harvest home? Oh, who will help us to garner in the sheaves of good from the fields of sin? What a challenge. We need to be sowing. We need to be watering. We need to be waiting. But there's also not only a challenge, but a cause for hope. Do not despair. The life is in the seed. The parable of the sower perhaps concentrated more on the force of resistance to the seed in the soils. But this parable of the growth of the seed concentrates on the force of the life that is in the seed that causes the seed to grow. There is a unique power in the word of God. There is an unusual productivity in the word of God. And there is an ultimate purpose in the word of God that will be fulfilled. James 5, 
Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord draws near. The wicked, Proverbs 11 says, works a deceitful work, but to him that sows righteousness shall be a sure reward. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. A cause for hope. Sower, do not despair. God's word has unique power, unusual productivity, and an ultimate purpose, and we shall see it soon. God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. God is working his purpose out, and the time is drawing near. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that shall surely be, when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Father, we ask particularly for those who have become weary and well-doing and how easy that is. The feeble knees are weak and our hands hang down because we so often view things by the naked eye we operate by sight and not faith. And yet, Lord, there's so much dynamite in this parable to persuade us that when we walk by faith to realize that the life of the seed is in itself and there is a unique power in your word and there's an unusual productivity, you're working a work in our day. And if we knew it, we wouldn't believe it, though we were told it. And we thank you that you are working your purpose out. So help us by faith to have perspective, to have patience, and to be persevering as we serve our master in this world. May the seed go deep this morning and bear fruit from every heart. Amen.